because we got the alternative energy right. molecular free autonomy and welcome to the radioactive show produced at the studios of 3CR Melbourne and heard nationally on the community radio network the nuclear free learning adventure the radioactive exposure tour or rad tour has returned and here on the radioactive show we'll be bringing you voices and sounds from the trip in many of our upcoming shows I'm Crunch, and today I'm excited to share with listeners speeches from New York-based Canadian activist Ray Atchison of Women's International League for Peace and Freedom and ICANN, which is, of course, the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons. We also hear from Tim Wright, International Director of ICANN. Both Tim and Ray joined us on Rad Tour 2018, and along with other ICANN founders and organisers, shared some of their stories of the recent international treaty ban on nuclear weapons and ICANN's subsequent winning of the Nobel Peace Prize. We'll hear first from Ray Atchison. She is speaking to a circle of rad tourers at Wilpina Pound, which lies on unceded Andamatna country in the Flinders Ranges, South Australia. So just a slight bit of history for people that might not know. ICANN was actually formed in Melbourne. So it's homegrown in Australia. And um, it started in 2007. And the idea at that time was thinking about where we were with the state of nuclear weapons and also the anti-nuclear weapon movement, which used to be huge, right? I mean, in the 80s, it was massive. They got about a million people in Central Park in 1982. Um, But with the end of the Cold War, a lot of people thought the nuclear weapon issue was going to basically disappear. And... Russia and the US would get rid of their weapons, but they didn't. Instead, they massively invested in their arsenals, so they reduced numbers, but they invested in making weapons more targetable, more usable, etc., etc. And a lot of that had to do with just sustaining the military-industrial complex in these countries. Um, And the other nuclear-armed states went along with that. And does everybody know who has nuclear weapons to start? There's nine countries, so it's pretty pretty quick run-through. Russia, yep, 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 Israel, yep, Pakistan, China, Pakistan. Israel. we already had Israel, India, India. Yeah. yeah, already had France, India. North Korea, North Korea. Mm. Yeah, UK was the last one. So that's it, it's a really small collection of countries, um, and then there's a network of other countries uh, in Europe, part of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, uh, that have an agreement with the U.S. that if there's a war, then they would rely on U.S. nuclear weapons. Um, and then Australia, South Korea, and Japan also have that same arrangement with the U.S. Uh, so they don't have weapons themselves, but they say that nuclear weapons provide security for their countries. Those, those governments say that, obviously, not the people so much. Um, so that's the landscape that we've had. Uh, for a very long time, Um, but the movement against these weapons has not resurged. Um, It hasn't resurged under the Bush administration. It didn't resurge under the Obama administration, even though Obama was investing more money than any president before him since Ronald Reagan in the 1980s at the height of the Cold War. Um, And that was the really frustrating conditions that we were working under, and if you work on any really left issue in the U.S. under Obama, it was actually really hard to do activism because he was seen as a progressive leader, got away with a lot of things. So 
that was the situation. Um, and ICANN founded as with a desire to engage a new generation of activists against the bomb. Fast forward all these years later, 10 years later, and we have 468 partners in 101 countries. So it is a big, huge global campaign. Um, lots of grassroots organizations as well as more professionalized NGOs all mixed in together. Um, the other thing that ICANN really wanted to do was engage activists in countries that hadn't traditionally worked on nuclear weapon issues. Um, so the main organizing against the bomb in the 60s and the 80s had happened in Western Europe and in North America. Um, so we wanted to get uh, activists working on other issues in Latin America and Africa and Southeast Asia, um, caring about nuclear weapons and talking about nuclear weapons and what it would mean for their countries if uh, there was a nuclear war. And we weren't the only ones that were concerned about these, they call them modernization programs. It's a sanitized term for spending lots and lots of money on building death machines. Um, and we weren't the only ones that were upset about this. Um, there was also a number of nuclear-free governments around the world that were getting increasingly frustrated with this situation because in 1970, uh, most of the world had agreed to a treaty called the Non-Proliferation Treaty. And the fundamental agreement with that was countries without nuclear weapons at that time would not acquire them. Countries that did have them would get rid of them. That was the agreement. So one side of that bargain has very clearly been held uh, for the most part, North Korea really being the only exception, which withdrew from the treaty and then developed nuclear weapons. But other than that, held strong. Um, but we haven't seen any disarmament. And every five years, they get together to review this treaty, they make a bunch of commitments, and then they back away from them the second that they walk out the door, basically. So governments that work in this environment were really, really, really frustrated with reneging on deals and uh, what they were seeing going on. Um, the power politics with nuclear weapons, nuclear weapons being held up as kind of like this ultimate security uh, and uh, like the platinum credit card, you know, we have this, we'll hold it over your head, um, how that has affected international relations over the years on a number of things. You're listening to The Radioactive Show and to Ray Atchison speaking on the 2018 RAD Tour about the journey towards a nuclear weapons ban treaty. She's sharing a brief history of this struggle and how the campaign was inspired by previous weapons bans to dare to envision a world without nuclear bombs. Let's get back to it. The movement to ban nuclear weapons was born of this moment of frustration and, um, and anxiety, um, but it also came from a place of hope uh, in recent years we've had big success on other weapons so in 1997 um, landmines were banned anti-personnel landmines and then in 2006 uh, cluster munitions were banned so these are both uh, known as conventional weapon systems and they have uh, indiscriminate effects on populations so they'll kill civilians during and after conflict you can't control them once they're in the ground um, kids can pick them up and play with them um, and they're not targetable really on military objects. And that's why they were prohibited. 
And so the majority of countries in the world said these are unacceptable weapons, they cause indiscriminate suffering, and they are against the rules of war, uh, so we have to prohibit them. And the effects that that had on countries that didn't even want to join these treaties and said, no, 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 we need to keep these weapons, big countries like China, like Russia, like the United States, um, it's had an impact on their policies. So we looked at that and said, well, what if we were to do something similar with nuclear weapons? We know that the nuclear armed states aren't going to go along with this, but what if we follow the models of these treaties um, with nuclear-free countries and just see what happens? Maybe it will have an, an impact on the economics of nuclear weapons, and at the very least, then, they will be prohibited the same as biological weapons, chemical weapons, cluster bombs, landmines, and it's, it's promoting the rule of law and international humanitarian law and a rules-based order. So we got together with a few like-minded governments, um, countries like Norway at the time and Austria, South Africa, uh, Brazil, actually not Brazil at that point, um, South Africa, uh, Ireland, um, and Mexico. Those were countries that were initially involved in some of the early thinking around this, um, New Zealand a little bit at that point. Um, and started developing the thinking around what, what we could do, how this would work, how we could pull this off, what the risks were, etc. Um, at the same time, um, we had a process going to look at the humanitarian impact of nuclear weapons. Um, and the idea here was this is how they started with the processes to ban landmines and cluster bombs. They reframed the narrative around these weapons. Um, so academics like to call it discourse shift, um, which is basically we did a very deliberate discourse shift around nukes. So instead of allowing the conversation to be about deterrence theory or security benefits or geostrategic balance, etc., we thought toss all that out, focus just on what these weapons do to human bodies, to the planet, to the environment, um, to climate change, what they would do to food production. Uh, economics, etc. Um, so there was three international conferences that were hosted by first Norway, then Mexico, then Austria, uh, looking at this from a really scientific angle. Um, the International Red Cross got involved and said they would not be able to respond to the detonation of a nuclear weapon based on their experience in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, so those were good sort of starting points to bring governments together, and pretty much everybody participated in those meetings except for the nuclear armed states. They said, we don't need to talk about our weapons, we don't need to listen to you talk about our weapons, have fun having that conversation without us. So we moved in that process, in that space, to create, increasingly create a culture of um, resistance to the nuclear armed states and uh, frustration with them and with the status quo, but also a culture of community amongst countries without nuclear weapons and of activists in those countries that uh, were keen on getting engaged in this issue. So we built up over these years um, a transnational advocacy network. It wasn't, we couldn't really call it maybe a broad mass movement. Um, there's not millions of people back out in Central Park right now, but there is a very strong network of people all over the world who are really engaged in this issue, and it is very global. Um, and what they were able to do was build up knowledge within their regions um, and uh, within capitals and work directly with government officials in those spaces. Um, so it wasn't just us going around the world 
um, and telling people what to do. It was very local advocacy happening that we were able to connect with on this, um, building up momentum for a ban. We were insistent and persistent and held the course on our message uh, that it needed to be a nuclear ban treaty. Um, and it wasn't until 2016 that we finally had uh, a majority of countries go on the record in a public UN meeting saying we want to ban nuclear weapons even without the nuclear armed states. So that's very recent. It took us um, sort of, I would say, from 2010 to 2016 to, to gather that momentum, to finally reach the time when countries are going to say, uh, we want this. Um, but then from there, we got the UN General Assembly to agree to start negotiations on the treaty. And then it was less than a year from that point. Negotiations happened over about four weeks in 2017. And... It was really interesting to be part of treaty negotiations or anything related to nuclear weapons without any of the nuclear armed states in the room, but none of them were there. This treaty was negotiated by nuclear-free countries, um, and in that sense, it was able to be an extremely strong treaty. There didn't have to be any watering down with the nuclear armed states. Uh, it prohibits all nuclear weapon activities from manufacture to uh, testing to use to the threat of use and the possession of these weapons. It also provides for if nuclear armed states do join the treaty, because we want this to be a tool that compels them to disarm. So if they want to join, um, or if they get rid of their weapons in their own way, like a bilateral negotiation between the US and Russia, for example, then they can do that and come, come into the fold of the treaty. So it's let, you said peace is your friend, is the line? Yeah, you said that peace is your friend. You said that peace is your friend. Of course, we were told originally that we could never achieve a treaty on nuclear weapons without the nuclear armed states, and now that we have done that, now we're told it's useless because the nuclear armed states haven't joined it. Well, we always knew they wouldn't join it. We never anticipated them joining this piece of the process, but it's a missing piece of the puzzle. It's a tool to get us to disarmament, and that's the way that we've always conceived of it. So not that we've messed it up somehow by not making it something they want to join right away. That would have been the failure. But having a piece of international law that says nuclear weapons are illegal is already having a massive impact in two different ways that I can see so far. And this is, you know, six months on from its adoption last July. Uh, one is that we've had um, disinvestment from nuclear weapon producing companies by some of the biggest pension funds um, that we know of, including in countries that don't support the treaty. So Norway and the Netherlands have divested. And that's something that everyone can do around the world is that kind of advocacy with your financial institution, with your bank. Um, so we, we're already seeing the early impacts of that. And the other thing that we're seeing is very interesting conversations happening um, and sort of somersaults and backflicks happening um, at the government level in countries in Western Europe that don't support it, that are part of NATO and that have stayed away from this on the basis of being part of NATO. Um, but since, particularly since we won the Peace Prize and have had um, more of an international media platform, we've watched a lot of these countries now having to explain to their populations why they don't support this treaty, why they stayed away from this treaty. Um, and when we were in Norway, um, Norway helped start this process, but in the middle of it had an election and went conservative. 
and pulled out of the process. But when we were in Oslo uh, accepting the Peace Prize, um, there was a big concert with lots and lots of people from Oslo at this concert, thousands of people, and the whole audience booed Norway for not supporting the treaty. So this is the ways in which um, we're going to see our work have an impact. It's not immediate. It's a long, long game. We've always known that. Um, but we have something that we can use. Thank you. I'm Crunch, and you're listening to The Radioactive Show. That was Ray Atchison, as well as some crows and magpies, speaking to the 2018 Rad Tour, a nuclear-free learning adventure organised out of the ACE Collective of Friends of the Earth, Melbourne. Ray was speaking to us at the beautiful Wilpena Pound on Anjamatna country. Now we'll hear from Tim Wright, Asia-Pacific Director of ICANN, who will scrutinise Australia's involvement, or lack thereof, in the process towards a nuke bomb ban treaty. Um, yeah, so our government um, is a huge disappointment, in case you didn't know. <laughs> um, but I think we should be... Yeah, this is this is a process that's been in train for a number of years, and Australia was the officially uh, involved in the early stages. So the Australian government participated in the three conferences on the humanitarian impact of nuclear weapons, and they conceded that, yes, nuclear weapons do have terrible humanitarian consequences, but we need to also consider the security environment, and it's simply uh, impractical to be pursuing a total ban on them. Um, and basically, so long as they exist in the world, we as a country will rely on them for our protection um, and they've kind of uh, continued that line uh, throughout and uh, Julie Bishop kind of said you know we need to be engaging the nuclear armed states not enraging them so this idea that you can kind of sit down politely and and say you know, what are you what are you doing about your nuclear weapons come on like that was kind of her um, proposal basically um, and we argued that, no, we really need to um, challenge them. We need to challenge the nuclear armed states and we need to delegitimise nuclear weapons, stigmatise them by putting in place a, a clear prohibition as exist, has existed uh, for a long time for chemical and biological and landmines and cluster munitions. Um, and it was interesting looking back at some of the arguments that Australia made around the landmine ban in particular... And that was in the 1990s, and they were all the same arguments. These weapons are essential for national security, total ban is naive and impractical, and those who are pursuing a total ban are actually trying to, are actually undermining the uh, elimination efforts to eliminate um, those weapons. Um, and so they kind of really accused us of, of undermining disarmament efforts and, and they were the sensible ones um, going about a step-by-step -step, um, process towards elimination. But we did quite a bit of um, freedom of information research which really got to the heart of Australia's um, objection to the proposal which had nothing to do with whether the ban would actually be effective um, but rather it was all about them being unwilling to uh, get rid of this policy of extended nuclear deterrence 
um, which has been in defence white papers for years. So the idea that if we were um, threatened with nuclear weapons, that the US would use its nuclear weapons uh, on our behalf. Um, and you know, that's not only um, deeply immoral for us to be supporting um, possible use of nuclear weapons, um, it's also pretty far-fetched to think that the US uh, would be prepared to do that and kind of sacrifice one of their own cities, uh, for example. Um, so we've, we've challenged that whole um, notion of extended nuclear deterrence from a moral and a legal and a logical um, point of view, but that is, that is basically why um, they've refused to support this treaty. Um, and concern about, you know, what might the US, how might the US react if they were to, to get on board with this? Um, and we thought, well, maybe under the Trump administration, Australia might be more inclined to adopt a slightly more independent uh, foreign and defence policy. Um, it seems to have been the absolute opposite, where they've said, we're just... Like, they, we've had government <coughs> officials tell us that they're so concerned about how the Trump administration might react that they don't want to do anything that would potentially anger um, Trump. Um, and so they're really kind of walking on eggshells more than um, they have been in the past. Um, so that's a really you know, shameful kind of reaction to, to all of this. Uh, so Australia involved early on, we were, Australia was also involved in the open-ended working group, which um, was this kind of UN process that um, came up with the recommend, formal recommendation to start the uh, treaty negotiations. Uh, and it was, it was quite hilarious because they were, the Australian government was very much the ringleader um, in this um, kind of anti-ban of this anti-ban group of about 30 or so countries. Um, and at one point they got up, the Australian diplomat um, got up and said, well, we don't think there's a majority of countries present who support the negotiation of a ban treaty in 2017. And it was such a foolish thing to do because it immediately galvanised all of the other countries and we had first of all I think the African group get up and say we all support this proposal for a treaty negotiating conference so there's like 54 countries um, then the Latin Americans and Caribbeans another 33 um, then the Southeast Asians which is uh, 10 I think there were four Pacific Islands present who all got up, yep, count us in. Um, and in the end, I think with, with, a, with a handful of Europeans, uh, it was more than 110 countries that had indicated their support. Um, and yeah, it was, it was yeah, undeniable um, that there was a majority and a, a, a very large majority. So the negotiations started um, in March of last year uh, and on the very first day, as the serious countries of the world were uh, gathering in the General Assembly, uh, we had this uh, small handful of countries assembling outside um, at the request of the Trump administration. Um, and the Trump uh, ambassador to the UN um, got up and she said, as a mom, as a wife... There's nothing I want more than a world without nuclear weapons, but we 
good guys need to keep them um, in order to, um, or else it'll just be the bad guys of the world who have them. And you know, an Australian um, diplomat was there standing uh, alongside her in a show of support for that position. Um, and, and it was a, a show of kind of where the um, power had moved. I mean, this is, this is the, supposedly the, the biggest, most powerful country in the world, just kind of standing there saying, oh, we don't, you know, we've got no, admitting basically that they've got no control over what's happening at the, the UN. So it was a really satisfying uh, moment to be kind of proceeding despite that kind of resistance. And um, we did a lot of fundraising here to make sure that there were um, Aboriginal test survivors present for the negotiations and able to speak, and also Pacific Island test survivors. Um, and that was not just at the negotiations last year, but also the humanitarian conferences. I think that had a big impact and meant that we had a very visible Australian presence at the meetings, despite the official um, boycott. Um, and they were amazing. Um, the two women um, who, who spoke from here were Sue Coleman-Hasseldane from Sejuna um, and Karina Lester, who's based in Adelaide. Um, and they argued very strongly for victim assistance provisions in the treaty um, and environmental remediation, and also um, a recognition in the preamble of the treaty of the harm done um, to communities around the world and specifically the disproportionate harm to Indigenous communities. Um, and Karina read a statement from 35 Indigenous groups around the world that are affected by nuclear weapon activities, testing and production. Um, and if she hadn't done that, I don't think there would have been a specific reference in the preamble um, to Indigenous uh, peoples, so yeah, that's how international laws made. <laughs> she was, uh, yeah, it was really impressive. Um, and the victim assistance provision is about ensuring that the rights and uh, the needs of uh, nuclear test victims or victims of Hiroshima and Nagasaki are met um, to the greatest extent possible, um, and and also that there's proper clean up. Um, of course, the environment can never be returned to the state that it was uh, prior to um, the tests but um, more steps need to be taken here and in other places around the world. Um, so we're doing a lot of work um, to change the Australian government's position um, on all of this. The process now that the treaty's been adopted is to get countries to sign and then ratify. Um, we've got 57 um, signatures so far and seven ratifications. We need to get um, a total of 50 ratifications before it enters into legal force. Um, and we are very confident, aren't we, Jem and Dim and others, that we can get Australia to change its position. Um, might not happen under this current mob, but um, we think it's inevitable that Australia will come on board given um, the pressure that will build over time, both from the Australian public and from other countries that join the treaty. Tim Wright of the Nobel Peace Prize winning organisation ICANN, the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, 
speaking about the work of Indigenous representatives from Australia who spoke up at the UN and contributed to the strong words of the Nuclear Weapons Ban Treaty that was created in July 2017. Despite being boycotted by the Australian government, traditional owners of this country were able to have their say about the effect the nuclear chain has had on their lives and cultures, from weapons testing to uranium mining. We need to put the pressure on our government. Find out more about ICANN's campaigns at icanw.org forward slash au. Recordings featured in today's Radioactive show were taken on the 2018 Radioactive Exposure Tour. Specifically, today's recordings were from Anyamatnya country, Wupina Pound, and thank you to our hosts on that country. Thanks also to Tim Wright of ICANN and Ray Atchison of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom as well as ICANN for sharing their stories. The Radioactive Show is supported by the ACE Collective of Friends of the Earth Melbourne and we're produced in the studios of 3CR in Fitzroy, Melbourne and heard nationally on the Community Radio Network. You can find us on Facebook or call 3CR on 03 9419 I'm Crunch. Here's to a nuclear-free future and a few final words from Tim. Uh, it's not. It's not hard. <laughs> I mean, it's not. It's not hard to reject <laughs> nuclear weapons. These are the worst bloody weapons of mass destruction. They're designed to flatten cities to kill tens of thousands of people in a single go. And um, I think that you know, overwhelming majority of the Australian public just have a natural um, instinct that yeah, of course we should sign the bloody treaty. Like what? what's holding us back it's it's so obvious um and and that's why we're so confident that um that we can bring about this change yeah. mm, thank you